time to give me such blessings and fill up my life. God is so good, I cannot express how thankful I am. I am so blessed. He's given me breath and he's given me life. He has saved my soul from torment and strife. Christ died on the cross just to show me his love. He is building us a home up in heaven above. And I am amazed that he take the time to give me such blessings and fill up my life. God is so good, I cannot express how thankful I am. I am so blessed. So often I stumble as I journey this way, but his mercies are new every day. His grace is sufficient for every trial. He amazes me more and more every mile. He gave me his word in his precious old book. He speaks to my heart every time that I look. He loves me and helps me when tempted to sin. Through Christ my Lord, over Satan I win. And I am amazed that he takes the time to give me such blessings and fill up my life. God is so good, I cannot express how thankful I am. And I am amazed that he takes the time to give me such blessings and fill up my life. God is so good, I cannot express how thankful I am. I am so blessed. I am so blessed. Man, well, let me tell you this. As a singer, that's probably the worst thing that ever happens to you, okay? And you forget your words or you can't see them or something. Can I tell you this? That's how life is, though. You know, you, you set out to do the very best you can, and I'm sure there was a lot of practice and went into that. I could tell you the number of times I've ever heard that group do something like that. I, I can't even count. The, I mean, I wouldn't. it's not even on the number of my hands. Maybe that time right there, you heard it. But let me tell you this. How you respond to that's important. I'm glad they ended that song together. I'm glad they ended it right. You know what the temptation is, just throw your hands in the air and quit. To say, you know, forget it. It's all messed up. We might as well just scrap the whole thing. I tell you what, too many people are scrapping life today. 
making some mistakes, uh, making some errors, messing it all up in their lives a little bit, and all of a sudden they just get discouraged and depressed and down. They just scrap it all, just throw it all away. But I'm going to tell you something, you don't get a second chance in life. You only get one. And you know what? If you make a mistake, you just got to dust yourself off, get back up, and keep on going. And I appreciate their attitude tonight, and they were willing to just keep on going and get it done. And I appreciate that tonight. Well, let's go ahead and um, take our Bibles, turn over to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I got to use a mic tonight. Our, our, for some reason, our lavalier is giving us a little trouble again, and uh, we've been trying to fix it, and uh, Brother Kavanaugh is really good at that kind of stuff, but unfortunately, there's some disconnect or there's some kind of short or something, and it's not something that hasn't happened before, so some of you well know. It's never been as bad as it was. Remember that one time it went off and all of us had heart attacks and we had to call the EMT in? and <clears throat> Yeah, it was bad that night. Boy, that got loud and obnoxious and, boy, was that difficult. And so anyway, 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, this morning I was sharing some things with the singles and I thought it was something that maybe might encourage you, might be a blessing to you as well. I mean, I, I asked the question in, in class. I said, what do you call someone who's afraid of Santa? It's claustrophobic. They're claustrophobic. That, that's exactly what they are. What three candies do you find in every school? Nerds, dum-dums, and smarties. And then this is my favorite, okay? This was my favorite this morning. What stays in the corner and travel? Oh, no, that's not it. That one's boring. Let me go. What do you call a man with no body? And just a nose. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> Some of my singles, they don't think that they're always that funny, but that one they thought was funny after I explained it to them. <clears throat> so 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22. We're going to read this verse, and then we're going to give just a little bit of a background into the verse and the context of it, but... The passage says, Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. David, he has a desire to build a house for God. Man, what a great desire that is. I mean, that's a wonderful thing to want to do something for God. That's great, isn't it? And you know, I don't believe God was upset in the least with that. But when God got the news and God understood that to be the case, he goes to the prophet and says, listen, I got a message for David. And so throughout chapter 7, God is, is going to share some things and he's going to tell him some things. And we're going to note here early on that David is concerned because here God is living in a house of, of, of curtains when he himself had a house of cedar. So again, he wants to do something great for God. But God's going to remind David that well, he hasn't had a house from the time Israel was delivered out of Egypt to the very day in which David's now asking or desiring to do so. Early on in the chapter, verses 6 and 7, he says, listen, I've resided in tents, I've resided in tabernacles, and he goes on to ask David whether he's ever requested or demanded that a house be built for him. Have I ever done that, David? Have I ever asked for that to take place? Now, let me say this. Again, I'm not convinced. I don't believe God's upset at this point. We're going to see that's not the case. 
if, I, if, if you ask me, I don't know that if I love somebody, I need to wait for them to ask me to do something before I want to do something for them. And so in this particular case, David wants to do something for God. And although God is saying now, hey, David, now let me ask you, have I ever requested, have I ever asked anyone to do that in all these years? Of course, the answer would be no. God then reminds David how he took him from the sheep coat and following after the sheep to leading a nation, the nation of Israel, and how he was with him the whole time and provided victory over his enemies and made his name great in all the earth. We see that in verses 8 and 9. Furthermore, God goes on to tell David that after he dies, that his son, his son's kingdom, Solomon's kingdom, would be established, and it would indeed be that son that would build a house for him. We read in 2 Samuel now, chapter 7, verse 18, if you're there, why don't you look? Then went King David in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? First of all, I noticed something extremely important here. I think it's interesting to note. Notice that David, King David, went in and he sat before the Lord. You know, sometimes we get the idea that we've always got to kneel or we've always got to lay prostrate on the ground or somehow we've got to be in some position in which we show great honor and respect to God, which indeed we ought to be expressing honor and respect. But may I say that David sat that day and David spoke to God in a seated position. May I say I'm glad the older I get that I can speak to God from a seat because sometimes I can't get on my knees and sometimes I can't get off of them. I just want you to know that you don't have to be in a specific place or at a specific time necessarily, although it's always good to have that time in your life. But anywhere you are, wherever you're at, you can reach God and reach heaven. So David is humbled beyond words, and he continues in verse 21, and he says, For thy word's sake, and according to thine own heart, hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. And finally, David concludes by summing up his view of and his attitude toward the Lord. And he says, for thy, he says, wherefore thou art great, O Lord God. For there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. I want to kind of break that down just a little bit today, that verse, if you will. And I want to, I guess, speak on this topic, David's commentary on God. David's commentary on God. Father, we come to you. We thank you now for this time that we have together in this place. May you speak to our hearts and may, our, may we be inspired and may we be motivated to be better for you. The truth is, Lord, is that men and women who do great things in this earth don't accomplish them through part-time effort. Lord, if we're going to accomplish anything great for you, it's going to take a commitment, a level of dedication, an element of sacrifice even. Inspire us to be better for you. May we too see you as David did. Bless us now and meet our needs tonight that we might be 
better for you going forward. In Christ's name, amen. First of all, I want to note David, David's analysis. His analysis. Right off the bat, he says, Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God. You know, again, David had some wonderful intentions. His heart was to do something for God that had never been done. And that was good. See, it was God who had delivered the children of Israel out of the bondage of the Egyptians, who protected them as Pharaoh and the army sought them at the Red Sea. It was God who gave them victory over their enemies and provided manna in the wilderness, the, the, gave them the rock that provided water and, and preserved their footwear and their clothing for 40 years as they wandered. It's amazing to think that their shoes lasted or their sandals, I should say, lasted for 40 years. It's amazing to think that the clothing on their back never wore out in 40 years. Is that amazing? That's called miraculous. That's called what only God can do. And may I say, sometimes in our lives, if we're not careful, we forget that we serve a God who's able to do the impossible. And we look at our lives and we look at our clothes and we consider our homes and our houses and we look over all the things we possess and we think somehow God's unable to do a miracle like that in our life. May I say he is able and he is willing. He would ultimately guide the children of Israel into the promised land and subdue the inhabitants of that land. And when they failed God, he would chasten them. And he would allow the occupants of the land to bring them into bondage. Upon hearing their cry, God would send them what he called a savior, which was none other than a judge. And that judge would judge them, and that judge would go before them and give them victory over their enemies. For many years, this particular pattern would be repeated until finally a king would ascend to the throne. Of course, that king was Saul. If you know anything about King Saul, you know he was a ripoff. He wasn't the greatest king, if you will. Matter of fact, he, he, was a rather, he was a rather selfish king. But he did lead them to many victories. And God, in spite of him, used him. David, a man after God's own heart, came along and he defeated the giant in the Valley of Elah. From that very moment on, things got rather messy. Saul's jealousy would enrage him. It would cause him to hate David. It's an amazing thing what jealousy will do. Well, I'll tell you what, we need to be very careful with jealousy, whether it's jealousy toward our husband, our wife, whether it's jealousy toward our children or, or to those things around us. We need to be careful because it will affect our outlook and it will affect our attitude. In this case, Saul's jealousy caused him to want to see David dead. Although David could be as loyal a subject as one could have been. Still God preserved and protected David. So David went from the sheepfold to the throne. He went from caring for the sheep, his daddy's sheep, being the under-shepherd of Israel. God anointed David. And that anointing would enable him to lead God's people to great heights. His fame and his reputation was known around the world and God would, would elevate him and honor him in a very unique and a very special way. The day was coming, however, 
like it does in all of our lives, when David would die. But God promised that his son Solomon would reign. And God promised that Solomon's kingdom would be established and that that he would be the one who ultimately would build the house that David desired to build. Being reminded of all of this, David cries out and says, Wherefore, thou art great, O Lord God. Thou art great. As he thinks back and as he reminisces and he's reminded of all the things that God has done for him and his nation, he can't help but cry out, Wherefore, thou art great, O Lord God. Today we marvel at the God of heaven. He hung the stars in the heavens, the planets in their place, the moon in their orbits. He made the earth inhabitable, the garden unimaginable, and molded man incomparable to all. He is the author of life, the hope of mankind. He is the God of all creation. By him, the sun rises and falls The seasons change. He simply speaks and all creation bows. It's interesting to note that he simply spoke the universe into existence. Great and good and godly is he. Generous, gracious, and glorious. May I say like David this this evening, we ought to cry out with him and say, Wherefore, thou art great, O Lord God. Thou art great. Yet I fear that too often we overlook the things God has done for us. We see first and foremost here right off the bat, David's analysis. Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God. But then number two though, we see David's affection. We may say his all. He goes on to say, for there is none like thee. There's none like thee. So when David considered what God had done for both him and his nation, he couldn't help but come to the conclusion, there's none like him. There's nobody. There's no one like him. He is unique. He is separate. He is totally different than all others. Hey, search the universe over. Climb every mountain, cross every sea, you still, still you and I will have to say there is none other like him. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 3, the Bible says, When I considered thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. Boy, the psalmist looks up into the heavens and he marvels at the handiwork of God. Have you ever found yourself on a a starlit night walking along and just looking and gazing up into the heavens? You ever just looked up there and thought to yourself, wow. I mean, I know we live in the city and sometimes it's difficult to see some of the heavenly bodies there, but it's truly, I mean, the further out from the city you get, the brighter the stars become. It seems that the heavens draw closer to you and you can't help but think, there's a God that created those things. Oh my goodness, God is real and there he is. He continues in Psalm chapter 8, verse 4 by saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? 
See, David understands because he, the psalmist, realizes that not only has God created the universe, but he created him. And even beyond that, he not only created, but he wonderfully crafted him and he made him his crowning achievement. I don't know what you believe, but what I do know is what God says. And may I say there's not an animal in this world that's more important than a human. Not one. I'm often amazed and even alarmed, I should say, when I hear people talking about sparing an animal's life, and yet we abort baby after a baby in America. I'm amazed by the the, the conceptual misunderstanding that we have today. But in God's economy, it is quite clear that you and I, his creation, are the pinnacle in that regard, in the sense that he looks at us and says, hmm, very good. Now, there's no doubt that mankind is a sinner. We understand that. But may I say that God loves you just because. It's not because of what you do or who you are. It's simply because... And thank God he does, because none of us would have hope without that. He considers the vastness of the universe and the order required in creation, and he concludes, there is none like thee. God describes himself to Moses. And he describes himself by saying, I am. That's how God described himself to Moses. I am. What what shall I tell them? Who shall I tell them that sent me? Who shall I tell them to send me to deliver them from bondage? Tell them I am sent you. I am. Turn over Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, would you? In Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, We read a very, very powerful verse. The Lord says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Boy, I'm glad to hear that. He is the beginning, He's the end, and He is everything in between. Turn over, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 9. The Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, is the great I am. In Isaiah 55, we learn something else about him, verses 8 and 9. We learn, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, we could go off on a tangent there, but may I say, in context, we're dealing with the nation of Israel again. And there they are, deserving of the wrath of God. And yet God says, my ways are not your ways. Although I ought to wipe you out, although I ought to be done with you, although I ought to do what I did back in Genesis 6 to you, My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. They're higher than yours. You would be ready to wax them. You'd be ready to get rid of them. But not me. I'm different than you. My thoughts aren't like yours. 
first time somebody harms us, the first time somebody ills us, the first time somebody does something negative to us, we're ready to just cut them off at the knees. God says, my thoughts are not like that. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, his thoughts and his ways are beyond our comprehension. Someone says, how could God forgive me after everything I've done? Because you're looking at it from a human perspective. If he, if he looked at it the way you are right now, he couldn't forgive you. But he doesn't see things the way you do. And thankfully, he doesn't. Because we'd all be in the same boat. A mess. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. David says, there is none like thee. There is none like thee, Lord. And in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, the Bible says, Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. His power is unlimited. His stamina unending. And his knowledge and understanding unmatched. Aren't you glad? This is the God we serve. So often we somehow try to bring God down to our level. We try to put him in a box so we can understand him. But may I say once again, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not ours. He is higher than the earth, far beyond us. We can't even reach out and touch him by any stretch of the imagination. He's so far beyond us, and yet he reaches down and saves us. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 3, we already discussed it, but he says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained. Oh my, he is the creator God. Creating all things. And yet he considers you and I. Matter of fact, the psalmist again, reflecting on God and himself, says, I will praise thee. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What saddens us the most? That someone takes their life because they believe they're not worthy or worth anything. Or that it hurts and hurts the God of heaven so much to see something that hurts, that he loves so much, hurt themselves. See, I believe that we've misunderstood what the real issues are here. No one has a right to take their life because no one has a right to steal what is only God's to take. It's not that they have lost years on their life that is such a tragedy. It's that they have stolen something that doesn't belong to them and something God desires of them. God loves them and God wants to fellowship with them. God wants them to be in his presence. He doesn't want them to take their life. He still has purpose and meaning for them. It is so sad to watch people go through life believing that they're flawed all the time. Can I tell you something? You better be careful how you treat people and what you say and do to them. 
because they may carry that with them the rest of their life. The psalmist says, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And may I say, if you've been hurt or harmed by someone, someone ruthless, someone uncaring, somebody that didn't have any concern for you at all, that just took their own will into play and did whatever they chose, may I say something to you today? You are still fearfully and wonderfully made. You can't steal what God's put in you. To think that God would create us, craft us, and make us his crowning achievement. It convinces the psalmist that God indeed loved him. And the Bible says we love him because he first loved us. Boy, the psalmist, and, and I say psalmist because David had 73 psalms. That David has an affection toward God. Not only does he say for there is none like him. I mean, there's none in comparison to him. But then David looks out and says, after everything you've done for me, all that you mean to me, there's none like you. Boy, we ought to have that attitude toward our wives, our husbands, toward our families, toward our church family. With all this in mind, David cries out, there is none like thee. Finally, considering David's commentary on God. And number three, we consider David's admission. His admission. Neither is there any God beside thee according to all that we have heard with our ears. You know, David makes no qualms about it. God is the only God. We live in a generation and a society that tells us that there are many gods, and they are all on equal ground. You don't have to believe in Jehovah God. You don't have to believe in the God of the Christian faith. No, that's all right. You can choose to have, you can choose to believe in any God you choose. They're all the same. And we often refer to things like many roads that lead to the same place. It's all right. I mean, you'd have no, you, should I say, you have no right to, to, to be so to, uh, intolerant of people, their opinions, their attitudes. You're just, that's just what you believe, but that doesn't make it right for everyone. We hear those kind of things. We have lost our backbone in many cases. We've allowed the world to bring us into submission. We've allowed ourselves to, to, to be intimidated into a place where we don't take a stand anymore. We don't say there is only one God. It's the God of the Bible. And Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You believe in Muhammad. You believe in Brahma. You believe in, 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 in Buddha. Believe in whoever you choose. And you have a right to believe in whom you choose. But may I say, they are not gods at all. Because there's only one God. How dare we say that? You might offend somebody. Because, see, you're not allowed to have an opinion. 
unless it aligns with theirs. But sadly, I, I must say, uh, we can't continue down that vein. We cannot allow ourselves to go down that road. We've got to take a stand, whether it's in school or at the, the university or possibly whether it's at work or wherever we are. We have to take a stand and say, God is God, and there's only one God. The Bible says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. There's only one God. The Trinity. One God, though. See, the worship of many gods is not uncommon. It's been referred to in the past, and it continues to be referred to as polytheism. We're reminded of this in, in the book of Acts. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 17 when we consider the Apostle Paul when he is in Athens. Notice verse 16. And then we're going to look at verse 23. First of all, in chapter 17, verse 16, the Bible says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Can I tell you we haven't gotten there yet? Someone says, oh, yes, we have. I don't know. I'm still here. And I don't believe in that. Now, listen, I, I, I mean, someone says, well, he was just being figurative, wholly given to. No, I believe the whole city was idolatrous. I think that that's why he's there now. We're going to see that he's going to share a message with them. He's going to try to convince the idolaters that there is a God and who he is. He goes on in verse 23 to say, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now he's being kind, isn't he? And I do believe that we need to use some wisdom when we deal with the world. In this particular case, notice he says that I noticed this inscription. I found this altar and it said to the unknown God, whom therefore ye, what, ignorantly worship. You know, ignorance is, is different than being stupid. There's a difference. Ignorance is something that you may just have never learned. You don't even know. You have no concept. You've never been taught. You're ignorant of a truth. You haven't rejected a truth. You're just ignorant of it. May I say that it's, there's no shame in being ignorant of something. The shame comes is when we've been taught the truth and we reject it. That's the problem, and that's what we need to fix in our own lives as believers because many times we know what God's Word says. We're unwilling to conform to it. But in this case, they are ignorantly worshiping even an idol they have coined or named the unknown God just to make sure they don't miss one. In Acts chapter 17, beginning verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, 
Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their inhabitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone graven, uh, or stone graven by art and man's device. At the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Polytheism has been with us for years. It's been with us forever, it seems. Many gods. May I say that God warns us about many gods. He warns the believer even not to allow themselves to be bound by any god other than him. Because there is no other god but him. And When I say that, I'm talking about big G God. Because we know in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that the Bible talks about Satan who is the God of this world. But it's little g God, not big g God. First Timothy 2, 5 says, For there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That mediator is Jesus Christ, isn't it? Acts 4.12 again says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Hey, no other name. No other God. He's the only one. You say, well, if I was born in another country, I'd believe I would recognize God as another name. Then you would be recognizing a false God. There's only one God. See, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ is still the only way, the truth, and the life. You don't have a right to name him or call him whatever you choose. God has already done that in the Word of God. He alone has the right, as God, as creator of all things, alone has the right. David's commentary. His commentary on God. He says, Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. The God that had taken Israel out of Egypt, placed them in the promised land. The God who had subdued the enemies, his people. The God who had elevated them, lifted them up among all the nations. The God who brought about a king after his own heart by the name of David. The God who would follow David with a man by the name of Solomon. Who would establish the kingdom and God would use him whose kingdom would be magnificent a picture of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ 
God who provided, protected, and cared for the people of God. David speaks of him and says, Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. What about you? If you were to write a long sentence or maybe a short paragraph paragraph describing God, what would it say? How would you describe God and what he has done in your life and for your family, your church, your nation? How would you describe your God? Well, we have David's commentary on God. But the real question is, how would your commentary be? Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time together, Lord. As we enter into this Thanksgiving season, may we be thankful that we understand what you've done for us and how much you've shared with us, the many blessings you've bestowed upon us. May we not take you for granted or what you've done in our life for granted. Father, I pray that you would speak to us, and Lord, may we consider this commentary on you by your servant David. And may we truly be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, how would we describe you? How do we see you? How do we view you? How do we evaluate the impact that you've had on our life if we were to put it into words? Father, help us as believers to take the time to remember what you've done consider your goodness and grace in our lives. And may our commentary be equally as powerful as David's. We love you. We need you tonight. And Lord, if there be any that are without Christ, who have never trusted and received him, may they settle that before it's eternally too late. May they simply step out of the seat and come forward. Meet me there at the front so that we can have someone take a Bible and show them the simplicity of your word, just the faithfulness of your promises and your goodness so that they too can know heaven as their home one day and the Lord Jesus as their Savior. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head bowed, every eye closed. The music plays. You come. What are you going to do?